0: Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't dictate it as almost always the case... During my 50 mile commute between Arlington and Frisco, Texas. Uh, Today is show, I think, 219. Maybe it's 218. I don't remember because the past few days have been kind of tough just getting to and from the office, uh, both in the afternoons and in the mornings. Yesterday, if you listened to yesterday's show, you probably heard a sound that sounded like somebody beating on metal with a ball peen hammer uh, very, very rapidly. in the background. Uh, That was a mixture of rain and hail impacting the top of the mobile studio. The hail was small, so it didn't damage the mobile studio at all, uh, which, of course, is my uh, Jetta Diesel uh, TDI. Uh, So the mobile studio's in good shape, but it made for rough driving. I actually ended up stranded on Loop 12 yesterday, just south of Texas Stadium. I would say for almost an hour without moving, I was actually contemplating getting out and putting the bug-out bag on and hiking home. Uh, That is... uh, how long we sat there, and it was a mixture, I think, of an accident, and actually blocking the highway for a while due to high water that would have been treacherous for people to drive through, and I actually drove through water yesterday high enough that my low-riding little Jetta, I got some uh, moisture in the uh, the carpeting on my floor through the bottom of the doors. So it's been some rough weather. Why do I tell you that? Because friends talk about the weather, because I want to tell you the good side of this. It is beautiful right now. Puffy clouds. 80 degrees Fahrenheit, and I sure as heck wish I wasn't heading to the office right now. This would be a great day to sit around the pool and drink margaritas. But let me tell you something, folks. That's what I'm going to do tomorrow, and I'll try to shoot a little bit of video for you guys tomorrow as well. Video note. um, We'll go ahead and start the house cleaning with the member support brigade today, just because I mentioned video and it made me think of it. Um, I did a video last weekend of, one, basically the same thing we did with the tree ring up in Arkansas. Arkansas for the members, for brigade members with the, the, the beans providing nitrogen for the hickory tree and we used all local materials. I did that locally here as well with my peach tree with a little different take on it. I did a video of that, uh, update on the peach tree and how it's producing this year already. Did an update on the strawberry pot that I, I showed you how to build several months ago and where we're at just in a few months going from those little plants that don't even have a leaf on them to we have berries now. Uh, and I did an update of our fig tree. So that's all going to be in the member support brigade very very soon hopefully i'll get an opportunity to update that today i don't know that i will it'll probably be a weekend project and then the video from this weekend will get put on next week and that seems like the pattern that we're following here but that said that's the type of uh, exclusive content that member support brigade people uh, get but remember it's not really about the extra content you get i just did that because i cannot stand to take money from people without giving them something more Uh, member support brigade was started because people wanted to donate money to help the show and uh, I figure the show's got to be worth a quarter an episode or you probably wouldn't spend 30 to 40 minutes a day listening to me. So uh, I came up with $5 a month or $50 a year. You get a discount for a year. The year price comes out to about $0.20 cents an episode, I think. So uh, if you think it's worth $0.20, cents, consider coming on board for a year. And uh, you'll get that exclusive content. Also, check out our advertisers. there are on the right-hand margin of our site. Uh, check out ReadyMadeReview.com sources. They are our sponsor of the day. Good guys, really cool stuff. And uh, Let's uh, move on from there. We'll go ahead and get into the actual show today. Today's show is actually going to be another listener Q&A. I know I said I wasn't going to do any this week, and I'm doing two, but the questions keep coming, and they're awesome questions, and they keep building up, and I keep whittling them down, and the folder with them in it keeps getting full again. And I want to make sure that I'm giving you what you guys want, and I know some of you ask questions, you're like, when is he going to get to mine? So uh, I'm going to go ahead and do that today. One was actually not a question sent in through the show, though. It was a question somebody asked yesterday in the comments section of the blog, and a follow-up when I did a show yesterday called the Federal Reserve Shell Game. And I explained how societies used to use things like shells and stones as currency, even though anybody could go out and collect them, and yet the currency system worked because the people in the community, was small enough community, they understood not to devalue their own currency through self-discipline. And then I explained how that same system could have been manipulated to make a hundred little island nations into a World Bank-owned slavery shack, and and exactly how that applied to the Federal Reserve. Can't rehatch the whole thing. If you haven't heard yesterday's show, go listen to it. It will enlighten you to the way our money works. But the question that was asked, and somebody sort of answered it, but they didn't really answer how, the, 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 the I don't think the, uh, the intent of the question, it was how the hell was the United States public, right, the citizenry of this nation sold on the concept of giving up their freedom to a federal reserve, fractional reserve system? Well, number one, they didn't understand it. And the person that answered the question in the blog said basically, well, they did it on Jekyll Island. During a supposed duck hunting trip, and it was written by bankers, not lawmakers. And then they took their inside guy and they had him sign it into law or get it signed into law while Congress was on break, and they never had a majority, and they put it in front of Wilson, who was a shill of the machine, and Woodrow Wilson, you know, didn't didn't veto it. He signed it into law, and next thing we knew, it happened. Well, that doesn't really answer the question of how it was sold to people, because that is true. I'll give you the whole story here. And uh, the names of the people involved that actually did this, and this is all a matter of record, and you can look it up. But... It started a long, long time before 1911 started way back before we had a guy named andrew jackson as our president and very early in our nation the initial uh structure of a central bank was set up now andy jackson was the guy that came in and he tore it apart and while there were little attempts to try to put it back together all the way up until the 1900s they never really successfully happened andy jackson is the guy that really created the currency that we called the greenback and a greenback means dollars to people today, but it's not what we were talking about. It's not the real greenback. The greenback was one U.S. dollar exchangeable for one dollar in silver from the federal uh, bank, from the U.S. bank. All right. In other words, you can go to a bank and get silver for your dollar. It was a $20 gold certificate that was redeemable in gold, backed by gold. That was the greenback. All right. That, that system came in under Jackson. The the bankers, though, the banking cartel, and it was a cartel, I don't say that to be sensationalist, really wanted to get control of the situation. They had a big problem with the way things were going. And the people I'm talking about were the Morgans, the Chases, the Warburgs, the Rockefellers, and the Rothschilds. This is the people that make up the Federal Reserve to this day. And about 1907, they had the guy among them that was the most known, which was J.P. Morgan, use his influence to leak information that a certain bank would be failing in New York City. And he didn't say what bank. He said A-Bank, which made everybody panic and start pulling their money out of all the banks. When the banks started having their money pulled out, interbank lending went to hell. Does this sound familiar? And... Uh, Everybody started to make runs because the banks were falling short of cash. On top of this, the banks then had to go out to people that had borrowed money from them and call their loans due and say, I know you had 30 years to pay off this house, Mrs. Jones, but even though you've been paying on it for 15 years, I need the balance now. I'm calling the loan in short. Which led to wide-scale foreclosures in a depressed housing and business market and a massive depression sound familiar? Okay, so this panicked the public and this was one of the, this was the first big recession of the 1900s. This was in 1907. 1907, not 1929. So in came the bankers with the solution, and they said, listen, the problem here is a shortage of currency. If we could just put more money in the game, whatever we needed to, to make sure that the banks never fell short, we would never have recessions or depressions ever again. And the long and short of it is that was the case that was made. Now, the story that the person said in the blog is true. These ten ten men from these these families got together out on Jekyll Island under the auspices of going on a duck hunt. They wrote the Federal Reserve Act. They handed it to a guy named Nelson Aldrich, who was a congressman. He brought it back to uh, our Congress, and they passed it during the winter break, right before Christmas holiday, when most of the Congress wasn't even there to vote on it. So it was a majority of the people left, and I would have a sneaking suspicion a few of them knew to stick around an extra day or two to get the deal done. So how well did it work? Remember, we're not supposed to have any more depressions, any more recessions, no more boom and bust. Okay, we had a, a major depression in 1919 that no one wants to talk about. Everybody's familiar with 1929. In spite of the Federal Reserve, the United States economy languished all the way through World War II. In fact, the illusion of recovery bef- from the war was an illusion. The United States almost went completely bankrupt in World War II. It led to the, the seizing of gold assets by Roosevelt, and selling our gold to other nations and devaluing the United States even further, pushing more and more people into poverty. We had a depression, or call it a recession, in the late 50s. We had one in the 60s. We had three, really, throughout the 70s. We had a recession in the 80s. We had one in the 90s. We had one at the end of the 90s. Then we've had one right now that's been called the worst one since the Great Depression, which I don't completely agree with or disagree with. How's this working out for us? So the cycles of boom and bust that they promised to eliminate, they now manipulate and control and make them happen at times of their choosing rather than prevent them. That's how it got sold to us. Can't go on this one anymore. You want more? Listen to yesterday's show. Um, Question from uh, my group. There's a couple here in Dallas, Fort Worth area that ask these great questions. This is another one of theirs, and you'll know who I'm talking about when I answer uh, when I ask it. If uh, if you're the one sending it, so would you recommend storing um, extra guns away from the gun safe? In other words, you know, most people go out and get a good gun safe for someone to lock up their guns, a cabinet. They put all their nice guns in there. Would I recommend putting uh, guns in different places other than there? Oh, hell yes. I mean, uh, my, my answer to that is, Duh. Of course. In fact, I say get yourself a cheap little gun safe, put it somewhere where it's readily accessible, and throw yourself a couple $79 uh, single-shot shotguns in there, maybe a beat-up old rifle and a $149 high-point pistol. They're all useful guns. They can all be loaned out to people uh, in a situation where you need to put a gun in someone's hand. And I don't mean just tactical. I mean hunting. You know, if I'm going to take somebody hunting that I've never been hunting with before, I'll put a uh, single-shot break-action 12-gauge in their hand before I put a full automatic shotgun in their hand. I don't care if they scrape it up, scratch it up, and I feel a hell of a lot safer. Uh, with someone that doesn't have their own gun, I'm a little bit concerned with them. Uh, the other thing, though, is if somebody ever shows up to doing the gun-seizing thing, and it's a situation where refusal will put you in jail or get you killed, it's so a good take them. I'm not going to tell you what else to do. You figure it out yourself. I'm just telling you, I would have some guns... They look like they're, you know, they are secure. 'Cause you got to secure every firearm very, very well. But look like where they're supposed to be, and, you know, all right. So, let's go on to the next one. Uh, how do I combat mosquitoes? Another uh, DFW uh, native asked this question. Well, they're bad this year usually by this part of the year the mosquitoes aren't that bad in Dallas because we, uh, we don't have a, as much rain as we've had this year but all this rain they're out there. Last night when I did my little garden walk and I uh, have a couple pepper plants that are a little deficient and uh, I don't know why they're not getting the uptake. they're in really rich soil but they're just uh, their leaves are a little bit yellow. So even though it rained like crazy yesterday, I went out and I fed them a little organic fertilizer, uh, liquid fertilizer and then uh, I sprayed everything with uh, neem oil. Uh, just to keep the bugs down because I know they're going to be up heavy after all that rain. I got bit up and uh, it's because I didn't do my major way that I combat mosquitoes. Folks, insect repellent works. Get it, spray it on yourself. It'll solve 80 to 90% of your problems. Um, There's a variety of uh, off, I think it is, called deepwoods. It's like 40% DEET and DEET is the active ingredient in just about all insect repellents. That's the one I use. It works really well. There's a Little bottles of uh, almost 100% deep that you can buy. Uh, when I go hunting, like turkey hunting or something like that, and you have to sit still, um, I'll put a couple drops of that on the bill of my hat. That'll keep them totally away from my face. I don't even have. I don't like to put 100% deep on my skin, uh, but it works very well like that. So that's my main way. Some other things that you can do is if you will, on occasion, and I'd say about once a week, take a, about oh, I'd say a quarter cup. Of orange oil, which is fairly expensive, but it works very, very well, and put it into one of those lawn hose sprayer bottles, and then fill the rest of the way up with water, and then use your guard hose and spray that all over your lawn. Uh, The mosquitoes hate it. They'll go far, far away. Um, in fact, a couple teaspoons of canola oil in there will actually act as a fairly good insecticide as well. And uh, it's not a lot, so it won't really kill on contact, but it'll disrupt life cycles. So those two in combination, very organic, it smells good, and it'll also help quell your fire amp problems. If you have bad fire amp problems, double the amount of orange oil. Uh, that'll work really well. And the other thing is, you know those citronella candles that everybody buys from Walmart? Walmart and things like that, and they seem to work all right, but not maybe as well as you'd want. Well, citronella is a plant, and uh, you can grow citronella plants all over your garden, all over your house, all over your yard if you want to, and it will have some level of mosquito repellent effect. So there's a few things there, and of course, I'd be remiss if I didn't say, hey, if anything, you have anything holding standing water. Uh, make sure you're treating it to prevent mosquitoes, and there's natural treatments that, uh, this, that put a bacteria into the water uh, that's harmless to everybody except mosquito babies. Uh, or keep it covered so they can't get in there. Because the main way you get mosquitoes to make more mosquitoes is by laying eggs in the water. So make sure you take that into account as well. Another guy asked a good question. says, do uh, you got any recommendations for sharpening stones to keep in my bug out bag? I don't know, man. A stone is a stone to me. And I know some people are really proud of their stonework, and they make sharpening stones. And uh, there's cheap ones, and there's good ones. And I'd say any other, anything that you look at as a quality product is going to work. I would recommend that you make sure that you get a combination stone at a minimum. Now, there's there's sharpening sets where it's like it's three in a triangle, and you can turn them, and you've got a really smooth, a semi-smooth, and a rough. But you at least want you know a stone you can flip over one side smooth, one side rough. You use the rough side first, and then the smooth side for finishing. The other thing about sharpening stones is make sure you, you train yourself on how to use them well. Um, there's a lot of value to like those quick sharpening tools and st- sharpening steels, but really hard steel knives, once they're dull, you got to put them on a stone to get the edge back, and then you can use something like a sharpening steel to really refine the edge. Um, but yeah, make sure you use a combination stone. Now here's another little thing I picked up from uh, Backwoods Home Magazine, actually, is where I picked this tip up. And uh, I've tried it, and it works really well. And it really works well on, like, low-end kitchen knives, 420, 440 steel knives, the, the cheaper, softer steel knives that are actually, to me, I think a lot of those knives are very useful. They're not a lifetime investment, but they're inexpensive, and they, they you can put a, a razor edge on them very quickly, very easily, so they have a purpose. And all you got to do is get any coffee. Cup out of your cabinet. Turn it upside down. You'll notice that it's glazed everywhere, except there's the ceramic exposed where the where the cup actually touches uh, the bottom to the table, let's say. That's because when that coffee cup is fired, that little depression that's there that's glazed over and that little rim, it's, uh, it's touching something and it doesn't glaze over. Well, that exposed ceramic can be used as a knife sharpener. Uh, if you're skilled with a sharpening stone, get yourself a knife that's not completely dull but could use a little touch-up and try using that edge of your coffee cup as a sharpening tool. You will be surprised at how well it works. So I don't think that's really answering the guy's question, other than get yourself a good combination of stone, put it in your bob, and make sure that you're you know how to use it. Um, but I thought I'd throw that one in there too. The other thing I'd say is, you know, make sure you teach yourself how to put an edge on a hatchet or an axe with a stone as well. You should probably be carrying a hatchet or an axe or a tomahawk in your bog out bag as well. Uh, it'll do a lot of things for you that a knife won't. And it serves a lot of utility and a lot of you double, du- double duty. Uh, but an edge is only as valuable as how sharp it is. Please remember that. So make sure you have the ability and the tools to sharpen anything with an edge that you might count on. Another guy says, basically he answered his own question when he asked it, but what's up with the rising cost of gas cans? Gas cans are like three times more expensive this year than they were, say, a year or a year and a half ago. And he said they're regulating them, and he's right. That's what it is. At new? Uh, regulations uh, that have come in from the Environmental Protection Agency have driven up the cost of gas cans. Now, now the problem is I think some people are looking at this and they are not understanding exactly what the hell that means. They think maybe, well, they just put more regs in for the people making them so there's like administrative costs or something. It's not a real change in the can. There is a real change in the cans. Remember how cans were up until last year? You would... um, you know, you take the 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 side with the spout off, and you pull the spout thing out, and turn it around, stick it through the uh, collar, and screw it on. And then there'd be this little piece that acted as a cover that you would take and you'd flip it over, and you'd stick it on the end of the gas can nozzle, and and that would be how to close it without taking the whole nozzle apart and shoving it back into the gas can. And then what would happen is people would lose those or the, the little piece that goes on the end, and, and that's not really a great seal in the first place. So people have gas cans. Sitting around in a shed or in a garage or wherever, with an opening, and then all those gas fumes are coming out into the uh, the, the environment. And the EPA says, oh, God, it's in greenhouse gas. They're all going to fluorocarbons, The polar bears are going to die. Oh, my God, we got to save the polar bears. So the EPA comes out with a regulation to save the polar bears and says, hey, um, what you guys need to do is put automatic closing valves. So if you go by a gas can now, you'll see that once you turn that, that nozzle around and screw it onto the can, if you turn it upside down, the new can, so that nothing comes out of it. It's sealed. And when you go to pour it... There's basically a collar, and you use either what you're pouring it into or your hand to pull it back and push that collar back. It opens the gas flows, and then when you allow it to close by taking the pressure off it, it seals the can and no gas fumes come out. I don't think that's a bad idea. I really don't like that the EPA has mandated it, forced it, and driven up the cost of every gas can in America by about, oh, you know, two times what it used to be, almost three times what it used to be. But I think the feature is probably a good one. And I I wish that the people making gas cans, instead of having this shoved on them, would have figured out that this is probably a good thing to do. Because even if you're not worried about the polar bears, you don't want people with gas cans sitting in sheds, uh, filling up the, the roof of the shed with gas fumes. Uh, You don't want gasoline cans in a position where if somebody knocks them over, they spill gas everywhere. I think it's a good safety feature. And uh, I I sure wish that our, our, you know, overlords were a little more concerned about making sure that something flammable like gasoline was stored safely versus being stored in a way that helps polar bears. So I don't like the price increase any more than you do, but do understand that for the additional price, you are getting an additional feature. I think if uh, if they had time to scale into it, this feature wouldn't have cost us near as much, and eventually when people understood the feature, the market would have migrated there anyway. Because if you have two gas cans for me, and one has an automatically sealing valve, that's the one I'm going to choose to purchase. Uh, so that's for that. That's how that happened. It's where it came from. It's why it's there. And I uh, just wanted to bring that up with people and let you know. Another guy asked a question. Uh, he wants to set up a side business. He wants to set up his own business and create a secondary income stream. He wants to know if I have any advice on that, what I would recommend, or are there any good books I would recommend. Well, let me say, before I say anything about this, I want to give you a caution With all of the stuff that's out there on the internet that says they'll teach you how to make millions overnight and anything that sounds like that, Um, they are 99% bullshit. And because it's my industry, I've purchased a lot of them, not because I thought they were going to make me wealthy, but because I wanted to see what other people were selling. And uh, in a lot of instances, there's some really good, solid material in these products, but they're not going to make you millions of dollars overnight. My problem isn't so much with the package, but the sales content uh, that goes around it. And the diminishing level of return of value as people buy this crap over and over and over again without implementing it. So if you are in that mindset, especially with the Internet, which is one thing I'm going to advise you to make sure you're leveraging no matter what you do, um, I would make damn sure you're careful with who you spend your money with and who you trust. And I'm actually in my main line of business putting together uh, some product that's designed to help people understand how to use, leverage, and market things on the Internet. When that's available, I'll let you guys know, but it's going to be a while yet before it is because when i do something like that i do it right but i do recommend making sure you're leveraging the internet i don't care if you set up a pet sitting business have a good website that tells your story that collects leads for you you can put on all your business cards or whatever but my belief is that the best thing that you can sell is information once information is packaged in a way that's truly valuable you can then distribute it very inexpensively. You can put it on CDs or DVDs or things. An example would be the product that we uh, we market for Valerie Asinoff, who's a sponsor on the uh, the Survival Podcast website with the Ballistic Striking DVD set. Uh, our cost of production is very low on those DVDs. Somebody else does all the work. We have a fulfillment house. All we do is the accounting and collect the money and do the marketing. You could take that a step further with putting products into formats where they're downloadable with e-books. So I would look at that angle to a large degree. As far as a book, the best book that I can recommend that's really going to teach you not exactly how to do things but how to think differently when it comes to the new economy and marketing information and leveraging the power of the Internet is by a guy named Tim Ferriss, and it's called The 4-Hour Workweek. And can you get to a 4-Hour Workweek? You sure can if you want to but I think that maybe that's a little bit of overselling but Tim will tell you in the book how he used the internet to help him figure out what the best title was and that's worth the price of the book alone. This is a book that if you're an entrepreneur and you have a a small staff working for for you you probably don't want your staff reading this book because they'll all go off and do their own thing unless you figure out how to give them something of their own where you're at so be forewarned about handing it to fellow employees especially the ones that you rely on. Uh, I think that is that powerful. Now, what do you set up? I think you have to take your knowledge and your passion and anything that you build additional to being an employee has to revolve around what you already know, what you're going to teach yourself more about, and what you're passionate about. Because you already have one job that you probably don't like or you wouldn't be looking to set up a second business. So why are you going to set up a business around something that you don't like? Um, I think the market is absolutely unlimited on the Internet. And around the world, and you have 2 billion people to sell to with internet access and credit cards out there. Uh, Currency exchange doesn't even matter. In fact, it can uh, help you. For instance, a lot of the uh, Valerie Asanoff DVDs that we sell, we sell them into Europe and we sell them into Britain. Um, The pound is very strong against the dollar, almost 2 to 1. So we sell an $80 package into Britain, and effectively on their local economy, it's costing us the equivalent of $40. It does very, very well there. So you can have an international market And, uh, you know, you take care of putting the shipping price in there and make sure you cover that. You can have somebody else do all your distribution if it's a physical product. So I don't really know. I mean, the guy that asked the question didn't say, I'm really good at this or I'm really good at that. So I don't know how to advise you in the specific direction you want to go. I would just say that every human has a unique, special talent and story. And if you can bring out your talent and your story and in a way that's you can apply it and make it valuable to others, you have something that's marketable. Some of the things that I think are extremely marketable right now are teaching yourself ways to set up low-cost solar systems. You know, things that put give people the ability at least to keep their refrigerator running and their lights on during a power outage and take just a little bit of money off the electric bill. And I think that can be done for a lot less money than a lot of people are, that are out there doing it right now are doing it. I think it can be done for a ton less money. And people that sort out how to do that market heavily in their community and go out and do the work and help homeowners do that and take that first step, I think you can make a lot of money. And just because you're doing a low end system doesn't mean that the uh, government incentives don't apply. So that means that you already can discount your price effectively thirty percent to your customer. So you put together a two thousand dollar system which a lot of people, you know, if you can put in something valuable for them for two K, they'll come up with the money. They're effective Cost is actually what only sixteen or uh, fourteen hundred dollars, because they're going to get six hundred off that year's taxes. So that's one. I, I mentioned pet sitting. I have a friend in New Jersey named Kathy, um, who really gave it a go at trying to make money online and just really didn't get online marketing the way that you got to get it to make it work. Just didn't. Put it together. I don't know why. Cause she's very, very smart and actually very talented from a technical standpoint. But piecing it together, it just didn't come together for her. But in the meantime, she set up a little pet sitting business, and uh, I think she's making about eighty-five thousand dollars a year watching people's dogs and cats and feeding their fish now. And uh, you know, she works late and she works early, and she doesn't do much during the middle of the day. Um, and she has to work holidays and all, but she does it at her own time, and she loves. Animals and uh, she's actually got her kids working for her part time as they, you know, they're on summer break and what have you. And uh, if she wanted to, she's got enough of an account base even during this recession where she could expand it and actually, you know, not work, you know, bring somebody in to do like part time and work times where she didn't want to work. But she actually likes it enough that as long as they're living there, she has no plans on, uh, on doing that. She's going to build it, you know, basically build it as big as one person can manage, keep up. A good, reliable account base off of that, and then she plans on selling that business when her family eventually leaves New Jersey. And like a lot of us, she wants to kind of live out in the country. So it can be done just about anywhere. If you can do it with dogs and cats, or you can do it. In my instance, we you know put together a product that's done over a hundred thousand dollars in sales that started with a a, a rush. Actually, Ukrainian that could barely speak English uh, that had no branding around them when we started. Uh, you, those two worlds are totally different. So you part. What is important to you? I think there's a tremendous opportunity with edible landscaping, permaculture consulting, uh, sustainable living consulting. I think there's tremendous opportunity there right now. The key is packaging yourself and marketing yourself in a way that makes people want to give you business. They want to do business with you. It's not a matter of if they're going to do business, but since I'm going to do business, I'm going to make sure I do it with this person. Uh, so that's the best advice they can give with that broad of a question. Um, here's a great question for, for, uh, for me to try to answer and try to put me uh, under a thumb a little bit. I said it wasn't very likely. I don't think it's likely, but it's possible. He said, Jack, what are you going to do if you... Uh, Cruise on up to Hot Springs Do the big bug out And uh, you're rocking along up there And taking your drive down to Starbucks Every day to use their Wi-Fi To upload your show after you're done recording it uh, Because uh, you still can't get a good internet connection Or whatever Which uh, may be the case And shit hits the fan And uh, you can't do the podcast anymore And if at that point It's your primary source of income What are you going to do next? Well, the interesting thing is, uh, since my other income is all tied to things that are marketed on the internet that are mostly informational and entertainment-based product, shit hitting the fan would kind of knock that out for me, too, wouldn't it? I mean, the electricity's down and the internet's down. I mean, big shit hit the fan. People can't even order it if they had the money, you know, so the financials, what would you do then? Well, here's the good news. By that point, I won't have a house payment, I won't have a car payment, won't have a truck payment, I'll only have to pay the county about $300 a year, I got enough of the uh, fiat currency saved up that I can pay that bill for a long damn time with cash if I have to. And I got five acres of very productive land uh, up and running at that point. I think I would pretty much sell any surplus food that I had and barter with it to the uh, local economy until the world started to put itself back together, and I would hunker down and you know, make do based on the preparations that I have. I would hope that somebody with my knowledge and skill set, as long as we didn't have all out road warrior, anarchy warfare going on, uh, once you got past the initial catastrophic failure of society and society began to uh, police itself again, I should be able to be uh, quite a bit of value to just about any uh, portion of the community that's most in need of the knowledge and skills that I have. Uh, anything from going out and saying, okay folks, now we got Got to grow our own food. I'm a pretty good, you know, agriculture slash permaculture consultant. I have a pretty good bank of seeds saved up, so I could go out and use that as barter. So I think that that drives home the importance of knowledge. And I'm going to tell you right now: if you have knowledge and skills, in that scenario, money's worthless. But the person with skills and knowledge that can actually do things is invaluable. So you build a financial stream, and you build redundancy by having enough practical knowledge that's actually useful to somebody. Because I'm a pretty good Internet marketer, but in that world, marketing's not really going to be real important. Other than basic sales skills so you can, you know, barter and and convince people, hey, I'm not here to hurt you, I'm here to help you. Uh, Other than that, I mean, my primary skill that I use day-to-day is gone. Broadcasting, no electricity, right? But the knowledge, you know what, here's how you build a solar oven, guys. Uh, Here's how cosmicing works so we don't destroy this forest now that we need to start burning wood. Let me show you how to do this so that we can pull the wood out of there, use it to heat our homes in winter, but we don't destroy the land, all right? and, and, and being able to leverage that skill and teach others very quickly, here's one or two skills, that you go special, you go take care of this. So I think that's how I would see myself in that scenario. The scenario, I really hope it never occurs. Another guy kind of told me a story, and, and the basics of it were he only works a couple miles away. Uh, the grocery store is only about a mile away kids he has to take about five miles though he'll take his bicycle and ride it to work a couple miles or bike up to the grocery store all the time and but he's saying you know how can i really get to a point where i'm not dependent on gasoline or if gasoline became really really expensive i could still get around and uh, the big thing is taking the kids someplace uh i guess it was school or daycare Like that five-mile trip, you can't throw them on the back of a bicycle and go five miles there and five miles back. And he thought about an electric car, but they're so damn expensive. Ever think about... um? get some really good quality solar panels and uh, retrofitting a golf cart as a little mini electric car. Uh, They'll do 10, 15 miles an hour. You could go five miles if you had to. Um, Basically, you've got a little electric car there. I know a guy that runs all around uh, Arlington. I see him all the time. He's an older gentleman, and he's got his little golf cart. I see him at the gas station, and he's not there for gasoline. I guess he goes just, I think he really goes in and buys some little Coke or something, just because he likes to go around and talk to people. He likes to chat with the people at that gas station. I see him go to the grocery store. I see him just ride around and talk to people. And I bet you the guy covers several miles a day. That's his thing now. And he uses a golf cart. He doesn't spend a dime on a. On gas. Now I'm sure he's plugging into the electrical grid, uh, but that could be accomplished with solar fairly easy. And a lot of these communities that you'll see, where people try to be completely independent, the Earthship communities and the uh, the uh, permaculture communities and things like that, that's one of the first methods of transportation that they create for themselves is solar-based power for golf carts. So that could be, you know, solar panels on the roof of the house, and you're plugging the golf cart into the 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 outlet just like you would be using the grid. Or that could actually be panels on the roof of the golf cart, uh, straight charging the, uh, the the batteries in the golf cart, or it could be a combination of both. And uh, I think that's a really great way, short distances, assuming you don't have real steep hills, uh, and assuming you don't have to drive on the highway, that it's all small side streets and things like that, uh, and there are places all over the world where that's that's the primary method of transportation. Uh, Dorothy and Matthew and I usually, we're not going this year because we're doing Dirt Time 09 um, out in California, but we usually go to Florida every year. And we go to a place called Sanibel Island. And uh, you can drive up Sanibel to an island called Captiva. And then you hit the ocean, and there's only one way to get across, and that's with a boat, and there's no uh, roads that go on to the next island. It's called North Captiva Island and uh, all the people that live on that island they do have electricity there's a you know under under sea electrical line run out there and the whole island population moves around that island on golf carts that's the method of transportation and you can rent a beach house there and when you rent a beach house for a couple weeks it generally comes with its own little golf cart and there's islands all throughout the uh, Caribbean where they do the same thing so there's no reason that we can't do that here other than I certainly couldn't drive a golf cart to work every day but it's one of the things that if you're interested in an alternative method of transportation, uh, rather than trying to build from scratch a complete you know, little solar electric vehicle, golf carts have an awful lot of potential. And uh, you can use a mixture of solar, and of course you can still plug into the grid, and it costs very little to charge up a golf cart. Okay, last question of the day. Guy says, I never really hear you talk about really long-term f- storage food, stuff that's going to last 15, 20, 30 years. Uh, do you do you, do you know, think we should pay attention to that stuff? Should we do that stuff, and why or why not? And if you think so, why don't you really mention it? Well, the main reason I don't mention it is I assume, and maybe I shouldn't assume, but I assume that if you're into this mindset, And you get past 60 days of storage capacity, you start to feel good about it, you put some money in the bank and you have some cash, you pay off your debt, you start producing your own food, and you get yourself stable that I've done 90% of my job in getting you as a citizen prepared. 60 days sustainability plus food production plus no debt, man that's a lot for a guy in his car with an mp3 player to get people to do it i got people doing it left and right and those calling into the, for the special show and i'll mention that here in closing in a second it's it's a lot of people doing that i also assume that if you get that far and you keep digging and you keep learning more if you if you decide you want some long-term storage there's plenty of ways to do it you can just buy it there's plenty of information on it and what i don't usually do as far as talking about it is i don't want new people that new people coming to the show every day to be thinking, first thing I'm trying to do when a person comes here for the first time is is make sure that they understand that that they're not in the bunker. I'm trying to pull their head out of bunker mentality, that we're not a bunch of freaks hiding out in the wilderness in a hole in the ground, and we're not trying to stock up to survive for 30 years. Now, the value of that long-term storage food, I think there's a huge value in it, is that you can put away, even if you only put away 60 or 90 days' supply of it is an awesome supplement to the food that you use through a rotational pantry if you have six months worth of you know readily eat you know food that you eat every day eat will you store store where you eat the old the old uh, advice that's well served Adding another six months of that long-term storage food allows you then to put that away and have that safeguard. I think there's some value there. But the first step is to make sure that you're you know, sustainable over the short term. And by short term, I mean 30 days, 60 days, 90 days. So trying to get people to take that first step. Um, the other side of it is it doesn't take a lot. Of understanding or planning to do that, you just, you need money. There's plenty of prepackaged food that has that kind of shelf life. So anybody that wants it can just go out and buy it. Now, I guess what I should talk about more and more, and I'll probably do a show on this, is creating your own long-term storage. And maybe not 30 years of it, but two or three years of it, using gamma seals, buckets, using maybe a little bit of dry ice, uh, O2 absorbers, different things that you can do for that. Maybe I'll put a show together on that, because I do think that's a good idea, and we do do quite a bit of it ourselves. Uh, but Again, think about the overriding theme of my show, a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. And we're far more likely to end up in a situation where you need to get by for a month than you need to get by for ten years. And my belief is that food storage in of itself is finite and inherently limiting. So I choose to put more of my effort into encouraging America and the rest of the world, to increase the production capacity of food. Because if we increase production capacity enough we won't have a problem. And I have two special announcements here at the end on that note. Number one, I am starting a project, a new project, that I will give details to only to people that want to participate and help me do it. And it's not just because you want to help. You have to be able to do some web development or programming and or graphics design. And I need a little team of people to help me put this together. I could do this internally with my own resources. I do not want to. I want this to be a community you Project. And again, it's going to be called the 10% Project. And it's going to revolve around very simple things for people to do. And I bet you can guess it has something to do with my opinion about ornamental trees that people can do to increase the food production capacity in America. If you are a web developer, graphic designer, uh, web programmer that would like to participate in this project, send me an email to jack at the survival podcast.com. If you cannot actively participate. If you don't have one of those skills, don't contact me yet. I'll have ways for you to help soon. I need people to help me put the platform of this project together. Don't fib to me just so you can get an inside look. If you watch Extreme Makeover Home Edition, this is kind of like Ty's special room. Unless you're one of the people driving nails into the wall, you don't get an early look at this one. Not completely early look. So I need help with that. The last announcement today is that Again, I'm doing a special show on the 20th which is coming up very very soon and in spite of the slow response initially I've now got a lot of responses if you have a story to tell about your last year and how the show has helped you live a better life and how you've helped yourself live a better life and the steps you've taken towards sustainability call 866-65-THINK tell your story you have two minutes to do it in do it soon because I promise you At this point, I don't think I'm going to get every single one of them, and I'm going to do them in the order that they're received. So people that are calling in on, like, the 18th, at this point, you know, I'm going to cap the show around an hour in length. Uh, It'll be a a very long show if it goes that long, but I want people that are participating to be heard. But I'm telling you, I want to hear your story. Please call in and do it soon, uh, because I'll probably actually create the show a day or two before it airs. So even though we're going to air the show on the 20th, Let's say that the deadline for submissions will be June 18th. That is only six days away, so it is really a good time to dial 866-656-866. 65, think and tell your story so you can be part of our one-year anniversary birthday show on the Survival Podcast. And on that note, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to sign off today on a beautiful Friday. I'm going to wish you well. I'm going to tell you to keep on keep it on, keep on preparing, keep on believing that you can improve your life and make it better no matter how bad or how good things are. You can have a more sustainable, more reasonable life with less stress, less grief, and less agony. And when tough times come, instead of being the person that's clobbered by them, you can be the person that not only gets through them well, but helps the people that you care most around you, as long as you keep on keeping on. I've been Jack Spierko with lot, another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. And you can scream, and you can holler, it really doesn't. All gets spent.